You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Hey, why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth this morning, if you guys can make your way to Ruth, it's the eighth book of the Old Testament, and we are so stoked to have you here this morning. We are in our third message on the series of going through the book of Ruth, and what we've called this series through through the book of Ruth is The Remnant, because what we are doing is we are watching our loving, sovereign God move and use difficult times in these people's life to call out a remnant. That while everyone was living in rebellion, while everyone sought and desired and did what they thought was righteous, what they thought was best, doing what was right in their own eyes, God is calling out a few, and of all places, Moab, to bring them back to himself. And so really, that is what we mean when we say remnant, when we're looking at the book of Ruth. But if you're new, my name is Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you're visiting, we're so stoked and honored to honestly have you guys here. Um, It's no accident that you're here this morning, and so we would pray that you would put your roots down in this church if you are looking for a church to to call home. We're a church that is all about Jesus, and um, we're really looking forward to being here every Sunday because Sunday is the best day of the week. Not not because it's football, which is cool and all, right? I get that, but Sunday is the best day of the week because Sunday is the celebration when we celebrate 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ on a Sunday conquered death, conquered sin, is alive today. And so this time for us together is not just, okay, let's kind of be cute and play church, right? Like it's, we are worshiping a risen Savior. And so that is why we're here. If we're here for any other reason, we're just wasting our time. But the fact that Jesus is King, He is alive, what is happening right now is very special. Whether you know it or not, This is a special moment. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, said this about the church, that it is the dearest place on earth. So we we got Disneyland beat, you guys. Maybe you didn't know that. This is the dearest place on earth because there is no greater place to be than in God's house with God's people because something happens when we come together to lift high the name of Jesus because when that happens, we are told that God inhabits the praises of his people. The king of the universe would show up and as we lift high his name we and we glorify him, we are changed more and more into the image of the Son. So this, though it's okay, singing some songs and all right, well, let's kind of talk about some Jesus stuff and then go on our way. It's, it's much more than that. This moment is extremely important because we are about to, to hear from God himself. 
through the spoken, written, authoritative, perfect word of God. Ruth chapter 1, if we can all stand. Ruth chapter 1 and beginning in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and sons and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me that for your sake the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Heavenly Father, we come today with understanding of you that is either completely off or that falls short of your incredible, awesome, righteousness, goodness, judgment, perfection. We see through our own understanding and as we try to live out, we understand and we know that looking at our own life, we wrongly view you at times. And so as we come to the book of Ruth, you have made yourself known throughout this story. And so may we lie at your feet, worshiping you, but also understanding you and your nature and your character and how you truly are the author of all things. That you, in fact, are the Alpha and the Omega. That you are the beginning of things, you are the end of things, and you are above all things. And this morning, we need to get one thing right, and that is you, God, and what you have done, and what your purposes are, and how you use our lives, use our circumstances. And so, Holy Spirit, would you bring weight to the words of your testimony about the glory of the Father, about that God, that you would actually show up to these remnant people who don't deserve it 
And likewise, would you do the same this morning? Changing us, molding us, transforming us to be more like your son, Jesus, God. So may we fear you and may we love you deeply more this morning than we did when we walked in. So God, thank you. Would you help me to be faithful to the scriptures and would you give us ears to hear? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you were not here last week, uh, I would really, really, really suggest that you go back and listen to last week's message because verses 1 through 5, we built some foundational work that we are going to begin to assume and grab with us and take with us throughout the rest of this book. And so uh, if you're here, if you weren't able to make it last week, uh, no worry, no big deal. But it, I would just say, please go back, listen to the, the message. But even though we're going to summarize and in, in short what we talked about last week as we make our way from verses 6 to 13 this morning, it would do you well uh, to, to listen so that we are kind of all on the same page as far as what we mean by the sovereignty of God. But where we find ourselves at the beginning of verse 6 is that Naomi and her, her family were hungry. In fact, before verse 6 and verse 1, they had a choice to make because there was a famine in the land. And the land flowing with milk and honey, there was no milk and honey flowing. In fact, they lived in Bethel, which is the house of bread. And in the house of bread, God had held back blessing them because they were in their rebellion. They were living in the midst of their rebellion. They were doing what they wanted to do. And so uh, this family, Naomi, Elimelech, and the family had a choice. And their choices were we could repent, worship God, and stay in Israel and have nothing or we could leave and not have God, but have everything else by being in Moab. It was stay here, have God, have nothing, or leave, not have God, but have everything else. And so what do they do? They move to Moab. Now, when we read verse 1 as Gentile Christians, 21st century, looking back on the letter of Ruth, we, we really don't understand the weight, the reality of what's happening in verse 1. We're like, oh, so they went to sojourn in the country of Moag. No, no big deal. Actually, huge deal. For a, for a Jew to leave, the land of promise was not just leaving a physical location, but was actually walking away from the God of Israel then go to Moab. Of all places, Moab is where they found themselves. And what was once a sojourn became their dwelling place. Israel's bride was cheating on God. But before we get down on Naomi and her family, we are all like this family. 
For we have all sinned. We have all abandoned God. We have all found refuge apart from him, pursuing the things that we would find pleasure in the world instead of forsaking those things, but finding the true and ultimate pleasure, which is in Jesus Christ. We've done this. We've done what makes sense, what seems right, what seems fair through our own eyes. And can we not justify our actions? Somehow thinking, well, God, I did this, but if you just let me explain to you why I did the things that I've done, because you see this happened, this happened, and I didn't get this, and so in turn I did this, but come on, you understand, right? And we present our case before him as though somehow, even though it's right in our own eyes, that because we see it through our own eyes, he sees through our eyes, and it's right in his eyes. No, not the case at all. Now, what makes the beginning of the story so dark is not just the pain. And is there not extreme suffering and pain in the first five verses? It's not just the suffering and the pain, but it is the seeming absence of God. It's a living hell of all that they're growing through, not just because they've experienced a tremendous amount of pain, but it's a living hell because the presence of God is nowhere to be seen. And is that not a living hell? To be in suffering and not experience the presence of God? No prophet has broken his silence up to this point. No prophet has stepped on the scene. God has not spoken. God has not revealed himself. No one has stepped up to the plate and say, hey, on behalf of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, receive what God would have for you. So no one's spoken. No one has said anything at all. And it's interesting because as we read here in Ruth, does, does, does the author of Ruth feel compelled to make an apology for God? Absolutely not. Because though they've suffered extremely, there's no explanation God needs to give of himself. God owes no one an apology. God owes no one an explanation. There's just heavy pain. Who do we think we are to put God on trial? Who do we think we are as man to bring charges against the king of kings and the Lord of lords? There's no one in higher authority than him. And so we read last week is that from the hand of God, Naomi has been devastated. First her husband, and then her two sons. And uh, I'm glad you're back from last week, honestly. Not gonna lie, I was a little worried. <laughs> it was a little heavy last week. But what we should all be asking ourselves from the end of last week is, okay, God, what is your purpose in this all? God, if you are truly, entirely, utterly in control of everything, what are you doing? What are you up to? And the audience of Ruth and Ruth and Naomi for herself see God for the first time. God breaks through. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law 
to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. Of all that they had gone through, of all the pain and the suffering she had, they had experienced the sleepless nights, the uncontrollable weeping, no way to cover up the agony her soul had walked through. The Lord visited his people. And you have to be wondering at this point, is she like, now you visit your people, God. Now you come. What about 10 years ago? After all that I had gone through, now at this time, you show up and and you visit your people? Now she doesn't say that, but you have to be wondering, is that what she's thinking? But it's interesting. There's no mention here of what caused the famine. There's no detailed account of how Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. We're given no backstory, no B-roll footage as to see how Malon and Chilion's life tragically ends and leaves their wives widowed. We don't even know how Naomi discovers the news that there is no longer a famine in the land, but that land is flowing once the land of promise is once again flowing with milk and honey. The author of Ruth does not care about these details of the short story, but as the darkness is pierced by the sign of first light, notice what Naomi doesn't hear. That's what I want to I want you guys to see. What does Naomi not hear? Hey, Naomi, have you not heard that, man, things are going really well again? The stock market is up in Israel. Things are pumping. There is more food than we know what to deal with. We're just throwing food away. We have so much food. Our pockets are deep. Wealth has increased. Though we lost our home, we got mortgages again, and they're bigger than they ever were before. Things are going well. We have an abundance in the land. Naomi, come on. You should come back. We don't hear any of that at all, do we? All she needs to know is this, because it's all that is revealed to her, and it is all that is revealed to us, is that the Lord has visited his people. And all you and I need to hear today is that God, 2,000 years ago, through his son, Jesus Christ, the incarnate, the, the, the word of God become flesh, visited us 2,000 years ago and made a way for us. It's not that, oh, you know, the weather is better and, and Naomi should come back because, I mean, hey, there's food again. Things, things are flowing. We've got our swag back. The money is pumping. You've got to get back here. It's better here than it is in Moab. Because all of those things would never fill what was missing in Naomi's life. And she knows that because death has a way of reminding you and me of what really matters. So if you're in here this morning and, and if you're sober, 
praise God. I'm so glad that you have yielded your desires to the greater desire of your Father who wishes that you would not be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit because to be drunk with wine is the opposite of actually being filled with the Spirit of the living God. So if you are sober this morning, that is a great thing. That's, that's good. That's awesome. Praise God for that. If your marriage was maybe once on the rocks, but it's actually doing pretty good now, and, and you guys are on the same page, and you're, you're moving in the same direction, and there's not as much conflict, and you know the kids are, I, I mean, things are going well, awesome. Praise God for that. that that's good, no doubt. And maybe you got the raise, or, or maybe just you have abundance coming your way right now financially. Listen, there's no shame in having and being blessed by God, because everything that is good and perfect comes from him who is above. Praise God if, if you have an abundance flowing right now. Now, while those things are nice, remember that those things must always remain backstage. They are not the forefront. They are not why we worship. Do not hug the shadows. It's weird for you to hug a shadow, is it not? Because it's on the ground. There's no substance. There's, there's nothing there. The shadow reveals the substance. The shadow reveals the source. And so too, I would say to you this morning, don't get caught up in the benefits of trying to follow God, but fall in love with Jesus this morning. Fall in love with him. Don't have a, you know, friends with benefits relationship with the God of the universe. I know that's a little bit explicit, but I don't apologize at all. Because that's how many prostitute the gospel. There are pastors who will stand up and will say, hey, if you come to God, if you just give your life to God, you're going to have more money, you're going to have more health, you're going to have all of these things. Is that good news? It's an appeal to our sinful flesh, and of course people are going to jump on that. Yeah, sign me up. The good news is not all of these secondary, smaller details within the storyline that could have potentially happened or even that there was food in the land. The good news in Ruth, the gospel which is being declared in verse 6, is that God has visited his people. Amen? God visited his people. God shows up to a people who are doing what is right in their own eyes. And the good news for us today is that God is here, that God is alive. But I want you to see something, and this is very interesting to me. Watch how the good news enables this woman who has been down on her face to rise up and to set her sights on Jerusalem. Watch how, though it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the gospel at work enables her. Verse 6, second half of verse 6 after the comma. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Verse 6a, then she arose. Is that not beautiful? Is this not incredible? That after all the horror Naomi has lived through, then she arose. 
the cause of the good news enables her to get up. Do you see that? For she had heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. Then she arose. The reality of God visiting his people emerges in other stories throughout the Bible. And you don't need to write these down, but, but um, you can visit them later. But one of those is of God visiting his people is Genesis uh, 21. I um, mean, maybe if you remember Sarah, Abraham, unable to have children, God comes to Abraham, says that you're going to be the father of many nations. Yeah, but we're a hundred years old. Hundred-year-old people don't have babies. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't happen. And so God visited Sarah, and she conceived. She gives birth to Isaac. God visited. Or how about in, in Exodus 3, when there is this burning bush and there is this, this guy who has rebelled and left Egypt and the family of which adopted him and raised him with, their, with his staff standing, sees this burning bush. The glory of God is there. God speaks to Moses and, said, and visited Moses. And as God visited Moses, God says, for I have seen the sufferings of my people. And what does Moses do then? God has a conversation with him and God basically makes him, convinces him to go and be part of God's deliverance for Israel. First Samuel, God visited Hannah. He visits this woman who, whose womb, she, her womb is barren. And she had been praying and praying and pleading and finally God answered her prayer. God visited her and she gives birth to four children throughout her life. One of the children, Samuel, who is ironically, sovereignly, probably the one who authored and penned the book of Ruth. The gospel of Luke tells us to praise the Lord because he has visited his people and he has redeemed them. Because God has visited his people and he has redeemed his people, we can now praise and celebrate Jesus doing this great work. Do you see all of the consistencies with God visiting every single one of these people is when God visits, we are transformed. When God shows up and makes his presence known, you and I can never be the same. We can never recover from that. Whether God shows up through, through plagues and famines and hardens Pharaoh's heart, or God shows up and softens our heart and draws us to himself. God visits. And what you can see throughout all these stories, where God visits, life is given where there is none. When God shows up and reveals himself, life is given where there is no life. I mean, we don't have time to go there. I just think of Lazarus, dead, four days, in a tomb, family weeping. Jesus shows up, visits, speaks, and calls Lazarus' carcass, breathes life into him, and so Lazarus comes out. No matter what you have done this morning, 
no matter what has happened to you, no matter how many times you have stumbled and stumbled, no matter how long the rebellion maybe you have been in or are currently in has last, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can get up again. The gospel enables you to get up no matter how many times you have fallen, Jesus will sustain you. Jesus will give you his strength. Jesus will give life to you and your mortal bodies where there is none. This is the gospel. Verse six is then she arose. And see, we are at the fringes. We are at the, the tip fringes of seeing God's gracious purpose in Naomi's life. And we cannot go any further in Ruth right now without pausing and stop and, and without stopping to take a moment to talk about God. God is purposeful in all that he does. Even intending evil and pain for his will. And anytime God does something in your life, to your life, God is doing a thousand things to your life. God never just does one thing to your life and then, um, well, let's see how that goes. God is constantly always doing a thousand things to your life. He knows as the creator and sustainer of the universe all the causes and effects of everything that he does in creation. I mean, we often view this so wrongly about God, mostly because, well, a lot of the movies that we watch today. Um, you know, uh, I think to, to give a real practical example, there's a couple of movies that come to mind. There's Inception, and then there's this other movie. I don't know the name of it exactly, but it's P. Sherman. This, it's basically about this genius dog who uh, ha is, his owner is a son boy and the dog is smarter than the boys because in movies, dogs are smarter than kids, I guess. And so I promise we're going somewhere with this. I really do. But there's these two stories. And so um, in, in one of them, you have Inception. So people going into people's dreams, trying to change the outcome of their decisions. But what happens is as they go deeper and deeper into different levels of these dreams, what they're doing is they're trying to play sovereignty in one way or another. And how good is man at playing sovereignty? oh, we did this and this happened, so now we gotta fix this, this, and this, and this. In fact, for the, the P. Sherman dog movie, whatever you call it, there's this, these kids come back from using the time capsule machine and the dog is like, what are you doing? You're, in, you're dressed in his Egyptian. And so somehow, because when man gets in control, when man gets sovereign, uh, we mess all things up. And so then the dog has to go on a journey to, to fix all that is broken in the universe, lest everything in mankind be destroyed. And this is how we think God is. Right? But God is kind of confused, kind of trying to make, now we, we don't say that, but that's how we live. That's how we think of him. Thinking that his sovereignty is picking up the pieces. Okay, so this happened back here in your life. I actually planned you going this way. So now what are we going to do with you? You moron. Come on, what are we going to do with you? Is that how God rules? Is that the sovereignty of God? 
God has no concept of confusion. In fact, I would argue sovereignty proves that it is impossible for God to be confused. Because if you are over all and control of all, you know all. There's no plot twists with God because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the alpha, the omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. And he is above all things. Do you see even how um, Colossians 1, 16, 17, that he is before all things and in him all things are held together? Do you see how that is even true in the story of Ruth? Everything happens according to his will. Everything. Even death. Now, was Satan involved with all that happened in Ruth's life? Yeah. There's no doubt Satan was involved, you can be sure. But even Satan cannot do anything independent from God Because if Satan could do something independent from God, that means Satan has sovereignty. And if Satan has sovereignty, that means God isn't completely, divinely, utterly sovereign. You tracking with me on that? If God is utterly and entirely sovereign, that means Satan cannot possess his own sovereignty. He is even in submission to the will of the Father. God is sovereign. He knows every cell. He knows the end of every living being. He sees the sparrow fall from the sky. He knows how the story unfolds. He wrote Ruth's story. He wrote Naomi's story. In his sovereign rule, His sovereign rule goes so specific, so big picture to now minute that there is not an atom in all of creation that has gone rogue unless he sent it to be rogue. And if he sent that atom to be rogue, it's not rogue in a sense of chaos bouncing off other atoms, creating catastrophe. No, he is planting and planning each and everything that happens. Okay, so so then what, okay, in Ruth and our life, what does this mean? What might have seemed like a detour for your life was part of his divine plan. And for Naomi, it was a 10-year ordeal. But it was not without a purpose. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything The Lord has made everything, everything, everything that has been made, which everything that has been made comes from God, was made for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So yeah, going back to Pharaoh, what about Pharaoh? God raised Pharaoh up only to crush him, to reveal his glory. The Lord has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And here's what I love about Ruth. And so what does this mean? If God knows all, if he sees all, if he plans all, it means this. 
From eternity, God knew the rebellion of Naomi and Ruth and his family, and God would pursue them anyways. Isn't that beautiful? And his plan for his remnant will be so incredible as we will soon read. It will echo for all eternity. You know what's crazy? Naomi has no idea what's going on here. Like she, she does not know all the things that we've talked about. She, she, she knows some of them. She does not see the picture unfolding here. Verse 8, she says to her daughters-in-law, Go! Return each of you to her mother's house. Here's what I want you to see of, of Naomi's understanding of God. She says, go, may each of you return to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the, the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord in his sovereignty give you provision, give you his providence. Verse eight, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse nine, the Lord grant. Do you see the, the God's hand and control through all of it? I mean, even Naomi through all of it cannot deny it. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope. Isn't that interesting here? If I should say I have hope. She has no hope right now. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? This is almost sounds like she's being rude, Naomi, right? Okay, Naomi, I get it. You've gone through a lot. Why are you being so rude to these girls? She's not being rude, just so you know. She's being real. She's being real. Um, Orpah, Ruth, you're a Moabite. And as a Moabite, you're basically hated, enemy of God, scum of the earth, cursed by God. What chances do you think you have coming with me to Israel and some, Jerusalem, some, some, some Jewish boy in Jerusalem or any one of the outside cities of Judah or wherever? What makes you think that you're going to get a date with one of these guys? No chance. I mean, you might as well go back. Your chances are better on Bachelorette of Moab than they would ever be if you were to come to Israel. Just saying. You know, and you, I mean, you even think of, and, and what is happening with the Ebola virus is, is horrific. Um, it is sad in the countries that it is taking place on. Of course, in some, um, I'm going to stop there. But it's interesting because, um, you know, it's like, oh, Ebola, quarantine, get away from me, disgusting, unclean. And that is how many of these people would have treated a, a Moabite living in 
Israel. Oh, quarantine, get away, cursed, disgusting part of the earth. I want nothing to do with you. And so Naomi here is actually saying goodbye to the only thing that she has right now. And that is her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And this is painful for her to do. In fact, you see them weeping, lifting up their voices and weeping. It shows you how much she loves them. Naomi loves them so much. She's willing to say goodbye so that they could get married so they can go. And now they're arguing back and forth. No, we're going to stay with you. No, no, why would you go? And this is huge right here because Naomi, her family legacy is about to be cut off if nothing changes. And if you were a Jew and you do not have a legacy to leave, you were cursed by God. That's what many people felt. Her legacy would run extinct. And this is why she says in verse 12 again, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And even if I, even if I did have a husband, let's say I got married tonight. Let's say I got married tonight and, all, you know, and I, we, we were... We had a baby, we, we were impregnated tonight, and then nine months later you wait, and you're going to wait for them to grow? She's saying this because of Deuteronomy 25, which says that if someone in your relative bloodline family, if someone dies that the brother or another relative would step in and marry the widowed spouse. And so if she is going to commit, if these women are going to commit to stay with Naomi, that's what they're signing up for. And from Naomi's perspective, all she can see right now, because she's not God, she's not sovereign, there's no hope for them. There's no hope for them. You cannot possibly wait for me to have children. So she says, look at verse 13, the end of verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The struggle is real for Naomi. She is suffering. She is in agony. These are not seasoned, light, fun, religious words she uses here. Many Christians, oh, how you doing? Good, really? She doesn't pull that. I'm not doing good. I am an absolute wreck. And she is speaking how she feels. She is being brutally honest here. She cannot see how God's love is for her, towards her. She says what she feels, and what does she say? that the hand of God has gone out against her. She cannot comprehend the love of God in any of this. One of the most difficult things, I think, for us as broken people is to understand the love of God. I was actually reading a quote earlier this week by John Owen. He's a phenomenal preacher, super solid, 17th century preacher, unconventional, but, but solid. And, and John Owen said this, and I think it would serve us 
pretty well this morning in light of what we're reading in Ruth. John Owen said this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, what is the greatest burden, the sorrow I can lay on the Father? He goes on to say, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is, and I don't know about you, Maybe you're doing this right now, but your, your brain is start beginning to pull back, is beginning to recoil all of the, the wicked man. Was it the time I egged the house? Was it the time I treated my wife when I was a complete jerk? When was the time I backstabbed many people? And, and, you know, pulling all of these things. God, what was the most offensive thing I have ever done to you? And I'm thinking of all of these sins. But I quote what John Owen says. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. And I was surprised. Because oh, how often I've committed the greatest sorrow against a loving, holy God. is to not believe that he loves you. Why? Because God is infinitely perfect. God is altogether righteous, abounding in kindness, overflowing his love and his grace to undeserved creation. What more would God possibly have to do to prove to me that he loves me by sending his own son? I need, you need no more evidence that God loves us. The evidence is demonstrated in Christ allowing himself to be crucified and allowing the Father to pour out his wrath upon him. But we, like Naomi, cannot see it because we are often blinded by our own sorrow. When we are blinded by life's sorrows, we often push back against our heavenly Father, thinking that he doesn't love us, thinking that he doesn't want us, and we would say, as Naomi has, the hand of God has gone out against me. See, Naomi thinks that God is her enemy. And God is inflicting sorrow to bring her back to himself. That's the answer. God is inflicting sorrow and pain to bring her back to himself. And this morning, I don't know uh, many of you, and, and I don't know where you're at in life, but, but the pain and the sorrow that you've felt and experienced from your life is so that God would hook you and draw you to himself. Do you and I not say in the midst of life's darkest storms, God, why has your hand gone out against me? This is why Naomi is being stripped of everything. The calamity of her life was not chance, luck, or karma. She knew that. She knows that God is still sovereign. Naomi knows that God is on the throne. But does Naomi know that God has love towards her? If you were to ask Naomi in this moment, Naomi would say, he does not love me because his hand has gone out against me. And the greatest unkindness 
you and I can do is to not believe that he loves us. She cannot see that it is because of the loss God loves her. It is because of the losses you've experienced in life is because God loves you. I think our understanding of love as Christians needs to be radically transformed and renewed by the scriptures. That God loves us so much that he is working all things together for the good, for those who love him, for those who are called, called according to his purpose. So what happens next? Well, the three dreaded words I share with you, to be continued, right? Next week. Now, of course, you can read ahead, read on your own. We'll get there next week. But in closing, I want us to all turn to Luke chapter 15. In closing, I want us to go to Luke 15. Luke 15 is all about God's controversial grace. God's grace was being unraveled from Jesus to religious people so they would see the love of God, the love of the Father through this parable that Jesus is sharing. And as you know, famously in Luke 15, there is a young man who takes... Uh, his father's inheritance before he dies. Is that not messed up? Hey, Dad, you got, you're loaded. You're, you're wealthy. Before you die, um, can you just give me all your money so I can enjoy it now? And, and the father says yes and gives his inheritance to his son. And so what does this son do? Well, the son rebels, leaves his father's house, goes to a far, far away land and is just parting like there's no tomorrow. And I mean, when you got money, when you got bling, when things are going well, there will will be people around you to uh, join you in the party and waste your money for you. And that's exactly what happens here is they're, they're partying, they're having a time. He's extremely popular. He got to enjoy all that he didn't get to enjoy by when he was staying at dad's house. So I'll show you, dad. I'm going to go and enjoy all the things I couldn't have, I couldn't enjoy, I couldn't experience while I was with you. Eventually he runs out of money. Party's over. Verse 16, how does it go? Of Luke 15. So he went and hired himself. He got a job out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He hits rock bottom. Like Naomi, the prodigal hits the rocks at the deepest deeps, at the lowest lows. There is no lower you can get here. He has hit his bottom, 
And verse 17 says this, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I'm perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father's house and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He realizes that in his rebellion, he pursued and went after all that he couldn't have. He had left his father. He had left the house of bread and he had gone to a far off country in rebellion against his father and is eating the pods of pigs. Now, to understand how low this is, I mean, I love bacon, Bacon, I eat for the glory of God, but for a Jew at this time, this was unclean. This, this is absolutely disgusting. And note, Jesus is sharing the stories as a Jew to a Jewish audience. So, what, do, what, do, what happens? And I want to highlight something to you in closing here. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, Until you and I see our sin for what it is. Until we see what you and I have made of our life, that we are like the prodigal in the muck, eating pig's food, there is no reason for us to arise. But, but look at verse 18. I will arise. Sound familiar? Verse 6, Ruth 1, then she arose. Until you see your depravity, the grace of God will seem unnecessary. Until you see, until I see what my righteousness on my own before God really is, and my unrighteousness, why should I want God's grace? There's no reason for me to arise. And if this morning you find it difficult for you to arise and go to Jesus, maybe it's because you haven't seen yourself for who you really are. For as the scriptures describe you and me, apart from God, the scriptures do not speak very highly of us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And God, in his grace, like Naomi, like the prodigal, God, in his grace, will let you be exhausted so that you would come to the end of yourself. And as you do, oh, that you would find God as a loving father standing at the front door waiting to run to you for your return. And know that it is the gospel, it is the good news that awakens your soul. May God visit your weary soul this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for visiting your people from Hannah to Moses to Samuel to Ruth to maybe even us right now.
Maybe there are those here this morning, God, who have never had a relationship with you. They've never been touched by your grace. And as they have heard the gospel go out this morning, they, in their soul, in their depravity, in their wickedness, in their suffering, in their agony, in the pigsty, have been awakened to their need. They have heard the good news and that the good news is not that, Jesus, you give us a better life. The good news is not that, Jesus, you give us an easier life. The good news is not that, Jesus, we can get stuff from you, but that, Jesus, we get you and you alone. So for those that are in here this morning who have been changed and transformed and are being made alive, if that is you this morning, that you've come in here and you have seen the gospel, you have seen what Christ has done to you, I would plead with you, respond to the good news, to the gospel in faith. Arise, get up and see all that Christ has done for you. Know that none of these promises we have talked about this morning are for you if you are not a child of God. But these stories are about that God has made a way through his son Jesus. Confess your sins and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, awaken your soul. And God, for those of us who are Christians, may we not do the greatest unkindness towards you, that is to not believe that you love us. But God, my words are just that. They are words. So God, would you accomplish through your word all that you would find pleasing in your sight for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.